Okay, so, uh, yeah, no, sorry, I watched the movie a little late, because uh, I cause I kind of got caught up playing, playing a Pokemon game like a child. Like an actual child. Dude, I play Pokemon games all the time, and I agree, I am like an actual child. Just big. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know, Pokemon is like one of the only things that I'm nostalgic for that yeah. like, really get me nostalgic. Um, so I yeah. invested way too much money just to play a fucking Pokemon game. Yeah. Uh, and now, I don't know, did you buy a 3DS? I did. Mm. Well, I bought a 2DS. Ah, alright. Because uh, they aren't making Pokemon games for the 3DS anymore. Yeah, I suppose the next ones will be... On the Switch. Switch? Yeah. It's gonna happen. Uh, yeah, so anyway, that's it for our Pokemon hour. And look out for the Pokecast in the future. Maybe uh, that's a yeah. thing. I like, I like wearing shorts because they're comfortable and easy to wear. Are, is your name Youngster Joey? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's turn now to our B-side podcast, Be Positive. My name is Louie. My name is Fraser. And welcome to Be Positive, the positive B-movie podcast. Yeah. Uh, today I'm feeling pretty positive about Blood and Black Lace by Mario Bava. What a good movie. Early giallo. Yeah, this is our, our second Bava, but it's a lot earlier in his career than the first one we did, uh, Lisa and the Devil, which, you know, if you're listening, go back and uh, and check that one out. I think... Also a really good movie. And a good app. One of our earlier episodes. Watch the movie and then listen to the podcast. But only after you've listened to this one to see how good we got since then. Yeah. um, Do kind of exactly what we're doing with Bava. Like a a retrospective exploration. Mm, mm. Our early year. Yeah. Our early year. (laughs) Or like two years ago actually now. Two years ago? Well, we started in 2016. No, we started in Jan of 2017. Did we? Yeah, with that one unreleased episode. Okay. I think uh, we wanted to start in 2016, but it took us a while to get our shit together. Yep. Uh, Ain't that always the way? Yep, 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 yep. How does this measure up with Lisa and the Devil, in your opinion, being early Baba? Uh, what's most striking to me is that it's much more understandable. Mm-hmm. Not not in a in a good or a bad way, just in a different way. Because <laughs> yes. Lisa and the Devil is is really quite surreal, quite dreamlike. Whereas this one seems to follow a more traditional sort of mystery suspense structure. Uh, yeah. But of course, it also has like a couple of twists in the yes. tale that that make it unique. Another difference for me is the lighting, whereas, you know, a lot of the later Giallo stuff is just kind of drenched in the bright, violent neons. The same thing is true for Blood and Black Lace, but the neon actually comes from somewhere. There are, you know, neon signs, or, you know, the things are that color. It's much more naturally lit in that way. Yeah, definitely. But still with quite clearly Bava's stylistic fingerprint. It's it's still very lush, very 
affective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's do a quick plot synopsis. The story starts with uh, Isabella, who is arriving at uh, Countess La Atelier Christiana. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, or the way I had it, Christian Hot Couture. Couture. <laughs> couture. Hot Couture. Hot Couture's. Hurikaturi. Hurikaturi. I feel like that is or should be the proper way to pronounce it. I think it is. I'm pretty sure it is. Hurikaturi. Hurikaturi. Correct us. Fight me on Twitter. As always, at Stay Scary. But yeah, so Isabella arrives at this mansion, this fashion academy type of thing more like a designer's emporium yeah it's a fashion house so Mm. it's something that i don't think really is around anymore but it's where the designer lives there Mm -hmm. they all work there all the models go there to practice um and the fashion shows themselves are also held there so isabella is showing up to work she's a model uh, she does not make it into the building, though, as a masked figure appears and strangles her with a garrote wire. Yeah, they find Isabella's corpse in a in a cupboard and call the police. And then the shocking discovery is made that the inciting incident of the film, Nicole, one of the other models, finds Isabella's red diary. Um, yeah. And as soon as the diary is found, we get these quick close-ups of pretty much every person in the room looking very suspiciously and guiltily at this diary. And at one another. Uh, yeah. They're all clearly interested in this uh, this object, this diary, and they're all wanting to have it for themselves. Mm-hmm. And as we'll find out later, pretty much everyone is incriminated in this diary. Yeah. And often, you know, it's not necessarily incriminating, like not necessarily something illegal, but something yeah. that would would cause them scandal or harm their reputation, you know, which seems to be much more important than potential illegality to some of these characters. Yeah, there is a, a, an air of aristocracy about them. Mm. They do seem uh, to be, in a sense, above the law, but still, you know, affected by it, but more in their social standing than anything else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, Nicole finds the diary and, and everyone knows that Nicole has found the diary. So Nicole becomes our clear second target here. Um, yes. She wants to take the diary to her lover, uh, Franco, because he's his kind of relationship with cocaine is explored in the diary. Yes. A very close relationship. Mm. So she goes to his um, antique shop, but he's not there for some reason, even though she literally just called him to tell him that she's coming over. Yeah, and he told her that he's feeling too ill. Yeah, he's he's got he's got the the detoxes real bad. <laughs> yeah, needs a fix. And as she's kind of wandering through this creepy place, just like stuffed to the brim with 
antiques and dust. Uh, the killer jumps out from behind a suit of armor and strikes her in the face with this weird medieval claw glove. I I believe the correct term is a gauntlet. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That makes Mm. sense. But this thing is is like a real menace. Yeah, it's all freaky. It's got the three claws sticking out the bottom. uh, And it's sort of shaped like a mitten. I don't think you could make a fist inside of it. It's more like a flat, pancakey hand type thing. You just slap someone's face off. Yeah, like a very bad slap. But anyway, so he yeah. kills her with that and then dumps the suit of armor onto her body. Um, mm-hmm. And then he goes through her purse, but the diary isn't there. And so at this point, we also know that the killer is not motivated just by lust or fetishistic kind of attachments or anything like that. He's looking for this diary. He's motivated by shame, maybe, or guilt maybe mm-hmm. or maybe greed you you never know greed, at this point yeah, we don't know uh, is he looking for the diary uh, to blackmail is he looking for the diary to save his ass that could very well be yeah the mission to find the diary continues and we find out that peggy one of the other models had had stolen the diary somewhere in between the time when nicole found it and when nicole went to franco's shop yes so Peggy reads it and she finds the passages concerning her about her um, secret pregnancy and secret abortion for which she borrowed money from uh, Isabella. She burns those Mm -hmm. pages and at that moment the killer enters and begins slapping her around and tries to get the location of the diary out of her. She's not giving it up though. She just says she burned it uh, and he kidnaps her. Just as the inspector arrives. Yeah. Yeah, he goes on to murder her. He burns her face on a stove, which we all know is fatal. From there, the inspector arrests all of the males in an effort to stop the killings. Peggy's body is then found by another model named Greta, who finds Peggy's body in the trunk of her car. She lives in the countryside, so she's pretty far away from you know, town from the inspector. She, for some reason, drags the body into her house. Very suspicious activity. Uh, She goes into her bedroom to, I don't know, to decompress or to relax. And she hears a sound, goes downstairs. Bam, the killer's there. Uh, She gets iced by uh, the corpse being dropped onto her. It is around about this time that it's revealed that the killer... At least in the dub that I watched, the killer was Massimo the whole time with the Countess as his accomplice and as the perpetrator of the last murder. To essentially give Massimo an alibi, being in jail and all. Yeah, uh, that's pretty pretty much as good an alibi as you're going to get. What follows then is that Massimo convinces Christina that they have to kill one more time. There's still one last thread and they have to kill Towley T-A-O-L-I not Towley from South Park yeah he just wanna get a little high but Towley in this film does not want to get a little high she pretty much just wants to put the whole thing behind her man I really felt really bad for her she has 
basically nothing to do with any of this shit. Yeah, she's not even incriminated in the diary. She's just yeah the roommates of two of the victims, you know, Isabella and Nicole. So Christiana murders Tao Li and um, tries to make it look like a suicide mm-hmm. to incriminate Tao Li as the murderer. But as she's trying to escape, what's-his-face Massimo kind of uh, yes. booby traps or like, uh, what do you call it, like sabotages the drain pipe and Christiana falls to her apparent death. Yes. Yeah, he goes back yep. to the mansion and he's just like, oh, give me all those fine jewels. Yeah, loot. Yeah, he's trying to make up for the financial ruin he's in, which is what he's afraid of in the diary, is, is the fact that he's a marquee, sure, but he's totally broke and in debt. So, uh, Christiana then reappears murders Massimo and then promptly keels over and dies inexplicably really I mean I get that she fell off a building but then she managed to go all the way to the Marquis house get the gun get behind the false bookcase shoot him twice and then just dies just like oh well I guess I'm done I guess now is a good time to just take a nap fine as the film says at the end. Yeah, I think it's technically finé, but I also, I saw it as sort of a, a passive-aggressive, like, just the film going, like, fine, you can um, leave. I don't care if you stop watching. Yeah, for my own sake, I'm pretending that Christiana doesn't die, that she just passes out from the exertion, and that she's going to be fine, and that she's going to explain everything that happened, and everyone will be fine, and we'll have a nice, neat resolution to the story the whole plot just wraps up with a little bow uh but in actuality it does not seem that the no, plot wraps up with a bow definitely dead yeah yeah and this is sort of the start of where bava starts not caring about your sense of completion yeah you know, he doesn't care about you feeling like the story is finished he he wants to leave the story with you and he wants it to stay on your mind for a while. Yeah. I think he's kind of mischievous in that way. He kind of r- r- rips the carpet out under you. Uh, I mean, several times in the film. Yeah, he does. So I guess that's it. So let's get into uh, our discussion. Well, I'd, I'd like to talk about things today. Okay. I uh, assumed things would be discussed, but what kind of uh, things do you want to talk about? I, I mean that literally. I mean the, the uh, category things, objects. Stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the criticisms that have been made of Giallo films and, you know, really all horror, I guess, all slashers that kind of came out of Giallo. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, a lot of the time a legitimate criticism is that through their objectification of the largely female victims, the film is is really quite sexist. Um, that it it relies quite heavily on the male gaze, like the death of women is made kind of fetishistic or kind of sexual. The same can, in a sense, be said of of Blood and Black Lace. But I feel mm-hmm. that the film 
is exactly about that objectification where people are so caught up in their self-interest that they literally turn people into objects through this you know the act of of murder Mm -hmm. and throughout the film objects are given kind of a, a central role for instance the the diary the MacGuffin diary is it kind of seems to have a life of its own it it seems to move around of its own volition the mannequins that we see in the fashion house also have a strange life to them especially you know they're so brightly colored they're so strangely posed yeah and they seem to have human hair yeah yeah which is an odd choice for a mannequin but i guess you know whatever floats your boat it's almost uh, the diary is almost like the one ring from lord of the rings yeah absolutely it's kind of the driver of the, of the plot mm-hmm. and for instance the, the police's first assumption is that the killer is some kind of sex maniac they say and um, of course that would actually be true for a lot of giallo films yeah it is strange though because if you say he's a sex maniac first of all being a maniac sort of takes guilt away from you because it means that you're ill you're yeah. sort of also a victim of your own illness and the sex mania thing is in a way it's putting the blame on the victims really yeah it makes the killer an irrational actor and it it makes the victims seem irresponsible in a sense yeah they they become again objectified as sex objects uh for the killer to be fixated upon yeah and it's very telling that that's what the cops would assume right mm so this idea of objectification for me goes th- right through to the end when uh, it becomes clear that Christiana has been committing some or all of these murders, depending on uh, which badly dubbed version you watched. Yes. When it's revealed that she's the murderer and that she's been doing it for Massimo to yeah. cover up for him, to try and hide his shame... And she says, you know, like, I did it because I love you. It's, it's, I do, I'm doing it all for our love. And it becomes clear that Massimo has kind of been gaslighting her or brainwashing her into becoming his tool, right? He's been objectifying her in this sense all along. Yeah. And, and right at the end, when she catches on to his game, she reclaims her subjectivity. She de-objectifies herself. She says, you know, she's making her own decision again, and she kills him and gets her vengeance. It's also, I mean, in the way that the woman's bodies are treated, because it's very telling to see that Massimo is the only male to die in this movie, and he dies at the end, but the female victims, once they're dead, their body becomes an object, and yeah, there's a concerted effort to hide these bodies. And it's usually by other females who are not involved in the murders like for example when Greta finds Peggy's body instead of phoning the police and being like damn there's a body in my trunk she tries to hide the body she hides it behind one of those dressing screen things I don't know what they're called I think that's screens yeah yeah why not Uh, she hides the body there it's almost like in how within the patriarchy there are these female figures trying to hide the crimes of the patriarchy trying to hide 
yeah the female victims from from sight sort of dragging them out of the way is like oh there's nothing to see here don't pay attention to this this is not definitely not something awful that's happened they have been indoctrinated in a sense into performing this yeah that that ties neatly i think with louis althusser's uh theory of interpolation where you you are subjectified and objectified by the system you are told to be something and you become complicit in in the ideology of of society in the same way that men are you know women can also kind of what's the what's the term for it it's um internalized oppression yes where where they themselves then can also perpetuate the the exact same system that that keeps them oppressed yeah a perfect example can be any number of appearances of Trump's female followers in the yeah. US political system where you know the tapes come out of Trump saying some heinous shit and they defend him they're like oh it's just boys being boys so that sort of idea of internalized impression is perfectly demonstrated when you get you know little boys doing awful shit because kids do awful shit because they don't have a sense of morality built in that's that has to be taught to them but when little boys do awful shit and moms just say boys will be boys it's an excuse yeah it's perpetuating that awfulness and that aspect of the patriarchy definitely another interesting kind of nod at objects that uh, I quite liked is when we see I think it's Massimo sitting at the desk there's one of the red neon red mannequins behind him and flanking this mannequin are two kind of like ancient Roman or at least like ancient Roman looking statues of women yeah and in that moment I just you know I kind of felt that connection between what we think of as contemporary objectification you know we talk about all the women in the magazines and stuff like that and the ancient form that this is not something that's new it's something that's been happening yeah ever ever since men men took the seat of power this episode is brought to you by a shadowy cabal of bankers and media magnates that's right all the conspiracy theories were true for your free sample simply dig down to our hq in the hollow earth and now for lizard people listeners get 20 percent off the hillary 2.0 skin suit a shadowy cabal of bankers and media magnates we know what's best for all of you. So, yeah, the movie also, like, everything that drives everyone is kind of uh, centered around things. You know, Frank Franco needs his drugs things, Massimo needs his money things, and everyone wants the diary. Christina wants Massimo, though. She is motivated by more than an object yeah she's motiv- motivated by emotion so in that way she she's more of a realistic representation of a person although she is being gaslighted she is being manipulated into feeling that way about massimo so at the end of the day her even though she is feeling real emotion 
the emotion is not coming from a real place. So it is a fabricated emotion. So the only real motivations are the motivations towards things. Yeah, greed and shame. Uh, these things figure in, of course, but they are directly related to to objects. Yeah. Also, along the lines of the objects, a lot of what we see in the film is literally uh, representations of people. So we see, for example, the suit of armor in the antique store. This yeah. is its not a real person. Uh, you can give it, maybe you could say, oh, that's, that's male. Because look, yeah. Yeah. the suit of armor has a card piece. It has a phallic imagery about it. So clearly this is a male figure, but that's, that's uh, paradalia, par- paradoilia or whatever. I'm sure I'll be corrected about yeah. that. But the the effect that in which people tend to see or tend to characterize and give human characteristics to non-human objects. Yeah. Classic example being staring up at the clouds and seeing, you know, a face or whatever. Yeah. Another example which I don't fully agree with is is giving human characteristics to animals where I mean if you just pay attention to animals they tend to show emotion which uh, you know is usually reserved for human char- as a human characteristic yeah. but you know it's just mammal mammalian characteristics really yeah when you see like a car that looks like a face you know headlight eyes and- yeah hood mouth which you know a lot of car designers actually do that on purpose to kind of make their cars more appealing but i just also thought that yeah. the uh the suit of armor in the anti- antique store is basically like the stereotypically masculine version of the mannequins that we see in the fashion house um and oh of yeah course, both have no gender being things but they are very clearly gendered yeah which also happens with our killer where we we assume that it's a male killer and maybe it is depending on which dub you're watching (laughs) yeah Um, at least for some of the kills it might be male but then you know we get the reveal that there is uh a a female killer also involved uh and and that kind of throws you for a loop because you know, the cops are also saying, like, oh, it's a sex maniac. We've got a crazy man on the loose. Code red. Code red. We have a male on the loose. He's doing what we all thought we could do, but now he's doing it. And that's the one thing that I don't like about that whole sex maniac argument is it implies that all males are just like a hair away from just going fucking insane and just murdering fuckers. Yeah, whereas the movie tells us that that's not in time. Men are self-interested and narcissistic and greedy, which is more realistic than sex maniac, maybe. But it's interesting that the police make that assumption, right? That that's the first thing that they they go to. Yeah, well, I mean, for a lack of motive, because for the whole film, the police don't know uh, about the diary. They're... They're sort of chasing this killer, but they they don't know about the motivations. They don't know about the fact that almost everyone in the fashion house is incriminated in some way through the diary. Yeah. So let's maybe talk about the violence in the film. All right. The violence for me was quite... It's, it's maybe a little less gruesome than um, 
you know, it's something you'd find in Suspiria. It's a lot less bloody. Mm. But but I found them really affective because the shots really lingered on it. It wasn't just like quick cut action. It's a much more a realistic violence in a sense. Yeah, it's more visceral. Yeah, I'm thinking specifically of when the killer is kidnapping Peggy, where it's this really long take of them just struggling with each other and the killer kind of slapping and punching her. Yeah. It's a tough watch in that section because Mm. it's such a... it, It seems almost mundane the way it's shot. The camera just kind of stays on it. Yeah, it's pretty much the same shot would be used for uh, conversation in a soap opera. Yeah. It's very steady. It just seems like, you know, it's not... The camera itself and the viewer is not being played in a way where, you know, we should be panicking about this. It's just, oh, this is happening. Yeah, and that, you know, paradoxically kind of heightens our panic at this point. Because it's not, you know, the killer jumps in and kills her and it's done. She fights back for a really long time. And it's, I mean, it's clear that the killer is stronger than her, but it still takes him a really long time to to get her subdued. Yeah. Yeah, that that was like a very affective scene for me. And I think all the violence, maybe except the first strangling of Isabella. Yeah, that that is very uh, it's very quick in comparison. It it's not drawn out. Uh, she dies very quickly. You know, it sort of makes me think that she might have a weak heart, a pre-existing heart condition, uh, asthma, just frightened to death. <laughs> she had asthma. The the garrot didn't really kill her. It was the asthma attack. But that's actually interesting. The way that the killer uh, chooses the the murder weapons, the style of the kills keeps changing which indicates that this is not a serial killer uh if we just think about it in in terms of these killers it's usually a serial killer will have one a murder weapon or a style of murder where this killer is pretty much just they're more purposeful it's they're on a killing spree but it's only because they haven't achieved their goal yet they they're looking for this diary and every time the diary switches hands, they're going to have to kill another person to get to the diary. Yeah, the the, the choice of weapons seem much more um, opportunistic, in a sense. Like the, the weird medieval claw thing in the antique shop. Uh, that makes sense. Just kind of grab that off the rack. Yeah. The couch pillow when, when he or she is killing uh, Greta. You know, that's also just something that's that happens to be there. So, yeah, this this killer is obviously not like we see in some Giallo films, like a fetishistic killer attached to a certain method. Like you said, this is about kind yeah. of getting a job done, uh, making sure yeah. the secrets don't come out. Yeah, the kill, it's not about the kill itself. This killer is neither a process nor a product killer. They're pretty much just, killing to get it over with yeah i think that's something that that reveals some of the the film noir influences in in giallo films it is kind of a, a crime film yeah rather than than a slasher yeah it's kind of you know it's in a twilight zone between those two for me yeah 
So in the way that the killer is just the costume design of the killer is very reminiscent of later slasher films like uh, the Halloween franchise, where the killer is vaguely masculine, you know, shaped in a masculine way, also dressed in uh, traditionally masculine attire, but there's no face. The same with Michael Myers from the Halloween series. Mm. You have a face, but it's a mask. It's like the Captain Kirk mask. Uh, I can't remember what the actor's name is, but basically just taking away the human element of the face. And the Scream mask from from the Scream series, again, it's a face, but there's nothing there. And in, in this film, they specifically have no face. It's just this blank... Uh, basically like a mannequin themselves. Mm. But something that's kind of in in contradiction to that is that, you know, your later slashers, your 80s and 90s slashers, don't really seem to have any motivations beyond just really being into killing people. Or I don't know, what is like mm-hmm. My- Michael Myers's motivation? He's like... Well, first of all, he's a classic serial killer wherein uh, he starts off by mutilating animals... But his fixation is on his family. So Michael Myers is more about uh, getting to his sisters. He seeks to end to end his direct bloodline. Uh, and then also, like Jason Voorhees, he's, uh, he is motivated by... His mom? By revenge. He is motivated by his mom. Again, both of these characters, they are these hyper-male killing machines... But they are, for all intents and purposes, they are motiva- motivated by their uh, Oedipus complex. Because a lot of their things seem to be kind of a, a pretty flimsy excuse for chopping up co-eds. The motivation becomes more vague as the sequels roll in. Yeah, uh, that's true. Where it only really matters in the first film and then from there it's just, you know, more of the same. So our, our Blood and Black Lace killer, I think... Uh, is is much more motivated by self-interest. Yeah, by self-interest, as opposed to interest in their family or their mother or sister or whatever. The killer in Blood and Black Lace, while still being terrifying, and I would not want to meet this fucking thing anywhere yeah, no. at night. Like, I'll deal with you if you're in, in a big black trench coat, that's fine. But as soon as you don't have no face, I'm out. I'm out. I'm not interested. I don't want to... Yeah. No. I don't want to play, you know. Can't be a friend. Yeah, yeah. I uh, can't be a friend if you don't have a face. I'm sorry if you don't have a face and you're listening. Uh, I might be your friend, but please don't try to kill me because that is definitely a no-no. That's a deal breaker. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's also where the, the dubbing issue comes in because we watch different, different dubs of the film <laughs> where... I watched one where it was implied that Massimo was the killer all along and only the last two kills were performed by Christina, uh, the countess. I mean, this might also just be me not being able to read films, but I kind of, <laughs> I saw it that Christiana was the killer for everyone, the killer of everyone, but doing it all for and under the instruction of Massimo. That's the, that's the wonder of of this killer is it's vaguely masculine but you can't tell who it is it could be anyone yeah and and i mean it it relies on you to gender the killer masculine yeah we it's assumed that the killer is masculine because the killer is 
stronger than the victims, but that doesn't necessarily imply a male. That just implies yeah, exactly. physical power. Um, it takes advantage of of our social conditioning to make us think something. You know, just by using the the signifiers that we have been taught to attach to masculinity. Yeah, like the the killer has broad shoulders, but that could easily be uh, shoulder pads in the clothing. Yeah, but something as simple as like a fedora, the fedora that the killer wears. Yeah, that's a man's hat, or you know, the shoes. It's Those a man's hat. Men's shoes. <laughs> you can't wear that. That's a man's hat. <laughs> Can you imagine, though, uh, Christiana having to... Because they uh, the cops do talk about the footprints uh, being the same and matching and being masculine footprints. Can you just imagine Christiana having, if she were the killer of all all the victims, yeah. having to trudge around in these oversized clown shoes, essentially, killing people. And get stuffed with toilet That's paper. talent. That's real talent. I mean, just keeping the shoes on while you're... While you're battling someone, that that's already very impressive. Say what you like about Christiana, but she's motivated and determined. But that's, I guess, again, that, that comes from the cutthroat world of uh, high-tension fashion, where you got sort of have to be cutthroat, you have to be vicious. And as is implied by this film, at least in the beginning, uh, Christiana is at the top of her game. She is a highly respected and highly accomplished fashion designer or guru or whatever these people are called. I don't even know. Madame. And I mean, fashion itself, also an industry uh, heavily reliant on objectification. You know, models are often referred to as basically being clothes hangers, which I think doesn't do models justice, but it is is a common perception. Yeah. Uh, Again, also, Giallo itself focuses very heavily on the fashion industry. And it's easy to understand why, because these people are under immense pressure. The models are under immense pressure to be skinny and to be this ideal, which is unhealthy as well as unachievable. Yeah, to sort of, in a sense, turn themselves into objects. To dehumanize themselves to such an extent that they are okay with with anything tread carefully i'm what i'm just what i'm saying is that it is very very intense industry and it's no wonder that this industry has its own genre of horror films attached to it uh yeah definitely um it also has this kind of delightful i think for a for a filmmaker or for a creative this delightful uh contradiction between the very glamorous and beautiful you know public facing side of fashion but then the the quite seedy underbelly where there's you know there's a lot of competition between models everyone's kind of paranoid speaking specifically of the film now everyone's kind of paranoid and suspicious they all know each other and they kind of know each other's secrets and there's you know all these little enmities and alliances and it's 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 kind of a very gritty world, actually, underneath all the gold. Essentially, it's this is a political movie. Oh, because Isabella is killed because she knows all the secrets. She holds the key to taking down the whole thing, the whole system. 
she's got dirt on everyone. So she's killed. It's a politically motivated killing. Then this diary becomes basically the expose, you know, exposing everyone's crimes. Yeah, the, the WikiLeaks. The WikiLeaks of Giallo, the little red diary. <laughs> All the killings are really very much politically motivated as well as motivated by greed. Yeah, definitely. And by by shame and people's concern for their reputations. Yeah. Like, for instance, if it got out that Massimo is broke and in a lot of debt, it's not illegal to be broke and in a lot of debt, but... No, it's actually quite normal. Yeah, it's, it's pretty average. <laughs> um, but for his social standing and for his place in the in the social order it would be completely disastrous you know so much so yeah. that he's willing to to kill because as a marquis you cannot be perceived as anything other than rich and powerful i guess and it's quite interesting you know um some sexist tropes are also kind of subverted here where in their relationship christiana is the breadwinner she's the one with with the money with the business with deserved respect you know from actually being an incredible designer and Massimo is this kind of relic of an older time you know a marquee marquees don't have Mm. any power what even is a marquee and now he doesn't even have any money although Christiana is also a a countess which would imply that she started Uh, off with a bit of a head start a small yeah. loan of $1 million. <laughs> she pulled herself up by her bootstraps from being an aristocrat to being an uh, CEO. <laughs> yeah, that is quite funny. There was one great line from Christiana when they find um, Isabella's body and, and the girls are upset and she yells at one of the models, Don't cry! It'll make your makeup run. But that just, again, goes to show the high-stakes world of fashion. Yeah, and of being a woman, of having to True. repress and suppress in order to survive in in the in the system. But I mean, in the same way, males are also expected to uh, repress and suppress to survive in the system because the patriarchy does not does not abide by emotional males. Yeah, absolutely. Another example of of internalized oppression. Okay, so that's, I guess, Blood and Black Lace, which didn't have a lot of blood or a lot of black lace, uh, but was still pretty good. Mm. Isabella's dress that she should have worn was black and lacy, though, so I guess uh, that's where it comes that's from. That's true, that's the black lace. I was actually expecting the dress to have a bit more of an influence on the, on the tail, but oh well. Oh well. Yeah. So, Louis, if you had to rate this film out of... One of the years that makes up the 70s. Which year would you give it? I would give this film um, a good 1978. Oh, fancy. I would give this film 1976. Also good. I think. I guess. Yeah. I'm not an expert on the 70s, so I don't know what bad shit could have happened in those years. Uh, potentially making our skewing the rating system. Yeah, I was kind of trying to 
that this film kind of aimed into the 80s through its through its influence on on what would become the slasher that's kind of oh yeah 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 that makes sense you, you even got the eight in there it's very good yeah yeah okay that's it from us for this week uh please follow us on facebook follow us on twitter uh let us know if you want us to watch any movies please like and subscribe and all of that and rate rate us on the things on the podcast apps that you love on itunes you know even just give us a rating on facebook just comment uh on one of our posts or on twitter and just say we rate you five stars out of five. a potential 10 uh, oh turned it around on you what you did turn it around on me 10 out of 10 <laughs> out of 100 uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh yeah that's been another week of be positive coming at you in 2018 uh, I'm glad to be I'm glad to be a part of this. Hopefully yeah. we don't have any more issues with recording. Uh, yeah, today's like been a little tough. Today. Yeah. Okay, well, we, we basically recorded this episode twice, but yeah. <laughs> from uh, Canis Radio Joburg affiliate, I am Louie. Uh, I am Fraser coming from Canis Radio HQ yeah. in China. I guess. I guess. That's very weird. Anyway, you stay scary. It's a me, Spooky Mario. Oh, with the Italian stallion. Ooh. Oh. Uh, oh, Louis, yeah, you, you were mentioning Pokemon earlier. Look at my power bank. What? I'm so cute. But it's just a Pokemon. Pokemon. Why, why didn't you get a great? Pokeball design more, it's classic. You've got the red and white, it's very nice.